You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Now, motherfuckers, what's good, everybody? Konnichiwa, my friends. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the Abakabu Cafe podcast. This is the Kimagure Orange Road podcast. I want to thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate all of the lovely feedback that I've received. And um, I thank you very much. If you would like to subscribe to this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. And if your podcast player of choice allows you to do so, I would love for you to leave a rating and a review that gives us a little bit of a hand in the algorithms. Today, we're going to be talking about TV episode 10, A Foreboding Dream, Shikaru Chang is Dying. This episode originally aired on June 8th of 1987. It was directed by Matsuzono Hiroshi, whom you should remember for previously directing episode five, A Secret for Two, The Problematic Part-Time Job, which in my opinion is a masterpiece and probably is the high water mark of Matsuzono's direction here in the series. Although uh, Matsuzono does have some more episodes coming up that are also very good. This episode is surprise, surprise, everybody finish drinking whatever you're drinking so you don't spit out a spray of coffee all over the place when I say this episode was written by Terada Kenji. I know it's a shock. I'll give you a few seconds to stop hyperventilating. Terada has now written episodes one, two, three, five, eight, and this episode, episode 10. That's six of the first 10 episodes. It is incredible. This guy is the dominant writer of the series so far. Now, our episode opens with this track here. This is After Heartbreak. They play it a little bit out of order. They use a slightly different arrangement in the episode, but this is a great track. I mean, this episode really drops very inconspicuously 
two incredible tracks on us today just kind of out of nowhere it's just i think a lot of casual fans don't understand how incredible the background music is and like what this is incredible work and we get this just kind of you know just a random episode it's not even a particularly special episode so we open with this and this is some foreboding music against the black screen. They, they kind of redid the rearrangement, so it's like dun, 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 dun against the black screen. We start with this foreboding um, music that plays into this foreboding imagery. These elements um, appear one at a time. First a lamp, then a park bench, then Kasuga appears sitting on the park bench. Clearly, this is a dream. Kasuga shows up in his PJs after all. And the lighting is very, very similar to the dream that Kasuga had in episode eight, the Shutter Chance episode, in which Kasuga dreams that Shikaru has become this humongous star and um, and is is just being kind of like taken away from him by her her stardom and all of those around her. Um, Shikaru dissolves in. She's the last element to enter the dream sequence. She uh, dissolves in as the light. Uh, that she kind of superimposes, dissolves out. You sort of have this cross-dissolve of the the lamp, this light, this bright, high-key light dissolving out as Shikaru dissolves in over top of it, superimposed. She is really being analogized with this light. She's like this bright, which is befitting her personality of, of being peppy and bubbly. They often describe her in this episode as peppy. And, and, and the, the light is the perfect analogy for her. Also, an artificial light, something like the the lamp can be extinguished, which is a theme of this episode. The bench fades out. It leaves Kasuga kind of floating here in space. And, and Kasuga and Shikaru float horizontally across the screen. They're superimposed. It's a real kind of trippy dream sequence. The imagery immediately tells you that this is not something that's happening in real life. This is obviously something that is occurring inside somebody's brain, most likely Kasuga's. Then at the end of the dream sequence, she's finally seated on, on the bench, and the bench is shown growing longer and longer. She recedes away from the camera, and the distance between her and the camera, or, or Kasuga's eyes in this, in this case, is ever-increasing, just like in that uh, episode eight dream. So again, Kasuga here is dreaming about not necessarily like a romantic or sexual desire for Shikaru, but he doesn't want to lose her either. He doesn't want to give her up. And so he's recognizing her importance in his life at this stage in the series. He runs after, he chases after Shikaru in his dream, and he finally catches up to her. He embraces her in a moment that is going to parallel the very end of this episode. So this is kind of our, our first bookend. And then um, he wakes up and he's clutching Jingaro tightly. He's hugging Jingaro the way he was embracing Shikaru in his dream. Um, but at least he's not kissing Jingaro's ass this time. But it is reminiscent of the uh, episode two when he wakes up from his his dream in episode two, um, which was also written by Terada Kenji. So uh, Terada here is reusing the Kasuga molesting Jingaro in his sleep because he thinks it's the person in his dream gag. And it may not be the last time we see this one either. The twins catch him like this, of course. They call him a dummy and a weirdo. They He immediately becomes the focus of their ire, and they, they kind of mock him. His current concern for Shikaru's well-being is the butt of the joke from the get-go here. He even explains to his family his foreboding dream 
over breakfast. And they, all, of course, they all laugh at him. They, they think that it, what, what, he's being crazy or he's being silly. And at least they understand why he was uh, trying to strangle Jingaro, but they don't feel like there's any credence to his, his current concern. Although uh, his father, Takashi Kasuga, pours a little gas on uh, Kasuga's anxiety. He reminds uh, the family that their dreams might be premonitions. They have their mother's power after all, as he reminds them. So this immediately, at least in Kasuga's eyes, and possibly the eyes of the audience, legitimizes Kasuga's concern for Shikado in this episode. However, if you're a savvy audience member and you understand that we have 48 episodes of this television series, as well as eight OVA episodes and two movies, you're thinking, are they going to kill Shikado in episode 10? Probably not. We understand that there's a certain um, credence being given by the, the filmmakers. We, they, they want us to think that maybe there is some truth to Kasuga's dream. None of the other characters really take him very seriously. His sisters don't hear. Ayuko won't in a moment. Now, on his way to school, Kasuga remembers the previous premonitory dream he had as a kid where he pissed his pants at school. And I just feel... So terrible for a young Kasuga there. He's like crying and his classmates are laughing at him. He's got like all the pee in it. You know, I just, I feel terrible for the kid here. Like I just looking at that image of him, kind of like the, the flashback of him crying. I just, I feel awful for the guy, man. But as we cut to Kasuga's recollection, the camera does this kind of rack focus. It, it, it unfocuses. Uh, everything goes very, very blurry. The cut happens while everything is completely unfocused. And then we get a refocus of the lens onto Casca's flashback. So this is kind of a, a, a visual narrative technique that tells us that we're going from the present day watching Casca walk to school to a recollection of his that occurred at some point in the past without them having to hold up a sign or, 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 or spell it out for us. It's a somewhat less visible technique. I mean, it's visible, but it's it's a subtle technique that you may not necessarily notice when you're when you're watching it it just communicates to us that he's entering into this flashback what we're seeing on the screen is is occurring within his brain and then it does the same thing on the way back to Casca here in real time now Casca's flashback here and I'm, I, I don't know if there's any significance to this but his flashback here is rendered in the same red pink and red tones as Hishikaru's flashback um, from episode four where uh, Ayukawa gets the locket back from the bully for her. And uh, I don't know that there's any significance to that, but it does help to communicate that this is a flashback occurring in Casca's mind because everything is rendered in different tones. Usually the the color palette used for the, the standard Orange Road episode is usually pretty well saturated. Um, it has a, a really very like a vibrant appearance. And then for everything to be rendered in a single tone, it separates what you're seeing on screen visually from the rest of the episode, kind of sequesters it and sort of puts it in its own sort of track. And you can tell that this is something happening in Casca's brain. That's going to happen one more time in this episode where the, the color palette is vastly simplified in order to sequester images and 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 separate them from the present day narrative i'll mention that in a moment now yusaku is closely following kasuga to school kasuga realizes this when he kind of comes out of his flashback yusaku calls him a punk when he runs off but 
Could be because Yusaku's disappointed that their encounter was cut short. You guys know my theory about Yusaku and his true feelings for Kasuga. I don't even think Yusaku is, at, at this point in his life, aware of his feelings for Kasuga, but I think he was disappointed that Kasuga ran away to school. There's a reason why he was following Kasuga so closely. Shikaru is initially oblivious to the context of Kasuga's concern for her. He expresses immediately as soon as he gets to school. But these are pieces of the plot coming together. Shikaru is going to, in a few minutes, become aware of the context for Kasuga's intense concern for her, and she is going to exploit it. I'm going to mention that in another minute. Here we have, in this next moment, uh, despite promising Ayukawa that he would eat lunch with her, Kasuga can't say no to Shikaru's request to eat lunch together. This is because, as I've said in previous episodes, I believe I mentioned it first in, in uh, my analysis of episode four, Costco is a people pleaser. This is people pleasing on steroids. When you think the person that you don't want to disappoint might also be dying, that's you're going to do whatever it takes to please this person. You're going to go out of your way to not be the bearer of bad news to someone who might have a terminal illness, as Kasuga is concerned Shikaru might have. Now, we do get a uh, flashback of Kasuga's memory from the previous day making plans with Ayukawa to, to get a Katsusan together. And we get a straight cut. There's no lens focusing uh, effect for that cut. But we do hear an echo or reverb effect on the dialogue that's placed there. And, and uh, the color palette is the same as your present day color palette, I guess, because it's just a recollection of like 12 or 16 hours earlier. It, there's no, you know, it's not like sepia tinted like an old photograph. It's a, still a, a fresh memory of the plans that they made just the day before. The irony of being a people pleaser, and I can speak from experience because I am a people pleaser, everyone who knows me in real life will, will agree, that the irony of trying to be a people pleaser is that you disappoint others at least as much as you please them despite your best efforts to please everybody. So by agreeing to lunch with Shikaru because he's worried she's dying, he's disappointing Ayukawa with whom he had made plans the day before already. So he's kind of canceling those plans. That, of course, you guys already know. If you're listening to this episode, you've been watching long enough to know how much is Ayukawa going to like that? Not even a little bit. We get some really pleasant BGM, the background music here in in, in Costco's flashback of making plans with uh, Ayukawa the day before at Abakabu. It's the fountain song being replayed. And it contrasts the the heavy kind of somber tones of his dream. I mean, the dream that he has about Shikaru dying is it's it's this trippy, psychedelic, kind of frightening thing with this starkly lit imagery, but this dark black background and this this um this really kind of heavy music going on. His his memory with Ayukawa, I mean they're enjoying some light banter. There's a really pleasant song playing. There's a sense that if he wasn't worried about Shikaru dying, that Maybe things would be a little less burdensome. I mean, he'd be having this sort of more light, kind of carefree experience. And there might also be this association with Ayukawa of this, um, I don't know, just this this kind of peacefulness for, for Kasuga in this relationship. Now, the fountain song, that pleasant music, continues as we return to the present from the flashback. And that connects the the memory that Kasuga's having of, of uh, making plans with Ayukawa for Katsusan lunch. As he stares out the window at school, this is it bridges us into the next scene. And this is a common technique that's used 
in in this series and other uh, other works because it helps to bridge from one scene to the next and uh, make it a smooth transition from Kasuga arriving at school to Kasuga pondering the predicament he finds himself in. He's worried about Shikata's health and is she going to die? Holy shit. And then he's also worried about having upset Ayukua now and she's completely snubbing him. This uh, technique of having the audio bridge also allows them to cut the audio abruptly, this pleasant music that's playing. They cut it abruptly when he when he goes to speak to Ayukawa and she completely snubs him. Like she looks away, she gives him that don't come over, don't you dare come over here kind of look. The, the audio cuts abruptly and that also communicates to us this kind of, you know, it's like when the, the, the white guy walks into the party or something in the movie and you hear the record scratch and the music stops and everyone looks over. I mean, it's that kind of moment that, that it's just like, ugh, like he was going to go talk to her and try to make it right. She gives him one look. No way, buddy. So it's a, it's a useful, uh, it's a useful technique for, for, um, uh, rolling that narrative along and kind of communicating what Casca's thinking. And then also demonstrating with the audio, like the pit of his stomach, just dropping out. Next, we get another very nice piece of background music here. We get this PE scene, it's a physical education scene, and it's meant to reinforce Casca's concern that something bad might happen to Shikaru despite her high energy persona. Um, this plays, of course, as uh, Kasuga and Komatsu and Hata are watching the, uh, the girls play uh, some kind of sport, I don't know, handball of some type. And uh, they're watching from, I don't know, second floor, third floor classroom. So they have a good bird's eye view of the, the field. And uh, Komatsu and Hata, of course, they're creepy pervs. They, of course, they're going to bring binoculars to school so they can watch the girls play sports and stuff like that. And so uh, Kasuka uses the, the Japanese word genki for peppy here. It's translated as peppy. Genki also refers more literally to health when you ask someone how they're doing. You, you say, uh, o genki desu ka, if you're using the, the, the polite um, conjugation of the verbs. Or you might, if you're not, if you're in a less formal uh, situation, you might just ask someone, genki, and, and you're asking them, are they well? How are they doing? Um, so by describing her as as peppy i mean he's also describing her as someone who's like uh, uh viewed at least in his mind in the mind of uh, others like ayuko and his sisters the twins as someone who is like very like she's well she's she's full of pep she's full of vigor and and youth and the idea that she might be ill terminally and and, and something bad's going to happen they just they dismiss it so easily whereas Casca having had the dream and trusting his premonition he is uh more worried the whole purpose of the scene is to impress upon the audience that perhaps there is some validity to Casca's concerns despite these other characters brushing him off you know she falls down and collapses there and and that causes some concern for Kasuga as well as the viewer. This scene also serves up some physical humor. Kasuga's like strangling Komatsu and Hata to try to get a look through the binoculars when when Shikaru um, collapses. And and uh, you know like uh, 
Komatsu and Hatta are like making those faces, their eyes are popping out, you know, getting choked by the the straps of the binoculars. Then Shikaru sits up. She looks directly at the camera when she reveals that her collapse was just a prank. She asks if she fooled anyone. She's asking Kasuga, but she's also asking the audience. She's looking directly at the camera and she's wondering if we were fooled as well. Are we with uh, Manami and Kurumi and Ayukawa as well as using our logic to determine that there are some 38 episodes left in this television series, not to mention the OVAs and movies, are we on their side in thinking that it would be ridiculous for Shikaru to be terminally ill? Or is there, did she fool us? Are we, are we starting to buy into Kasuga's um, concern? And, and do we think maybe that his concern is a little bit well-founded? He is an esper after all. So she's not really breaking the fourth wall here, but definitely like poking it a little bit, um, definitely nudging it a little bit. And this is meant to be somewhat uh, acknowledging the audience here as, as viewers who um, may or may not be uh, as worried about Shikaru as, as Kasuga is. Now, just before the episode's midpoint, of course, Shikaru learns about Kasuga's dream and that it caused him to get so worried about her health. And this is where we see a little bit more evidence of what I have said before. I believe I also mentioned this during episode four discussion, and that is Shikaru is manipulative. Uh, I've said it before. Again, she takes advantage of a situation as soon as she learns about the situation. She's willing to use it to her own benefit. She's willing to take advantage she recollects Kasuga asking her that morning if she felt well. Um, that recollection uses the same unfocused, then it cuts, then it refocuses again effect. It also adds a little bit of reverb to just show that this is happening inside of Shikaru's mind's eye. And it, it keeps a consistency throughout the episode, kind of a, a direction consistency in terms of uh, how, how uh, flashbacks are communicated to us visually. And then everything that occurs in this episode... After this point, you know, from the midpoint on is Shikaru using her inside knowledge to manipulate Kasuga. She intends certain effects like ramping up Kasuga's concern. She wants to take advantage of his concern. She doesn't want to dispel his concern. I, I think someone a little bit less manipulative would maybe have a more direct conversation with Kasuga and, and let him know that you found out about his dream from his sister and that if she wanted to be sweet about it, she could even say that she appreciates his concern and that it's very sweet of him to be so worried about her, but but to communicate in a more honest fashion. Instead, she doesn't do any of that. She doesn't have any kind of honest dialogue with Kasuga here, and she goes straight into manipulation mode. She's going to see how she can work this situation to her advantage. There are also some unintended effects of her manipulation here because Yusaku comes along for the ride, right? He's got to stay by Kasuga. I mean... Shikaru's side, right? Was that an unintended slip of my tongue? Or did I mean to say that Yusaku always wants to be by Kasuga's side? Of course, um, in this episode, Hatta and Komatsu are, are super creepy pervs, as usual. They're watching the, the women play sports with binoculars, which is super duper creepy. But it was also sweet of them to get cutlet sandwiches for the twins. This, of course, provides a little bit more physical humor at their expense. They're kind of being abused in this in this very physical confrontation for these katsusans that I don't, I don't understand. I've never seen anybody fight for school food before. I've just never seen anybody clamor over school food. I understand katsusans are delicious, but I don't, I, I just don't see the, I don't see why someone would get like violently assaulted for it, but 
they wind up beaten and bruised, and the twins, they get their katsasans. They're fine. Twins are no muss, no fuss, but uh, Komatsu and Hata are uh, like shredded. They're like uh, bruised and beaten up and battered, and they can't even stand in that next scene. And, you know, it is, it's it's supposed to be kind of like uh, uh, look at these these kind of buffoonish guys, they get abused, and ultimately, Kurumi and Manami are the benefactors of their abuse. Also, find me about 25 years ago with a, with a Katsusant. If you got a time machine, 15-year-old Jason wants a damn Katsusant. I eventually found a recipe and made my own because I just realized it was never going to happen unless I got on an airplane. And really, it's a lot cheaper to make your own. Now, we, we have an important scene here where Kasuga is so preoccupied with his grief over Shikaru's impending doom that he accidentally bumps into Yusaku. And Yusaku overreacts, in my opinion, by slugging him. I, I think it's, even if you hate the guy, all he did was bump into you by accident. I don't think KTFOing him is really appropriate. But on its face, this is kind of a humorous pratfall for Kasuga. He he gets knocked down and he falls into the like janitor closet and he gets the mop bucket stuck on his head and he's like rolling around on the floor before he kind of gives up. And it's okay. It's funny. It's funny when a character falls down. It's funny when a bucket gets stuck. Look, it's been funny since 1915 when a, a character gets a bucket stuck on their head. It's been funny for the last hundred years, at least maybe more constant humor you're you're never that well is never gonna go dry guys but for yusaku punching kasuga might actually have a little bit more meaning it seems that he reacted strongly because he hates kasuga right that's what we're supposed to on first blush assume but on the other hand perhaps because they're at school and ayukawa is right there and and lord knows who else could be watching because they're they're in this public place, Yusaku has to go above and beyond what would be considered reasonable to maintain his heteronormative facade by, by ironically punching the person that he really wants to be with because he's got he's to keep up appearances and he doesn't know how to handle his emotions at this point in his life because he's, he's so young. He doesn't know how to process the excitement of being bumped into by Kasuga. He knows he's at school. He knows Ayuko's watching. He knows he's got this tough guy facade. He's got a, he's got a belt Kasuga. It's, it's ironic, I know, but I think it's a sign of his true affection for Kasuga, guys. Also, Ayukawa here reveals a little jealousy when Kasuga tries to take her with him to visit Shikaru. She even thinks to herself later at Abakabu, Shikaru this, Shikaru that, and it, it shows that she's a little peeved that that uh, he, he's so preoccupied with Shikaru in this episode. Ayukawa doesn't understand why Kasuga feels so strongly about visiting Shikaru, and that that honestly makes Casca feel a little bit misunderstood by her. This is a person who usually gets him. I mean, I think that one of the strengths of his relationship with Ayukawa is that they they vibe, like they have the same wavelengths, they're on the same page. So for him to feel misunderstood by her, I think is a little bit like hurtful. She's not on his page in terms of his current concern because she didn't have the dream that he had and she doesn't know about the power. Now, Ayukawa ribs him a little bit here. She does this intentional um, Shikaru impression, calling him darling and hanging on him in a manner that is very characteristic of Shikaru. And I think that was meant to, to kind of rib him or, or kind of tease him a little bit. But, you know, I, why she teases him like that and then she like snaps off him the minute Yusaku shows back up, it actually seems kind of like Ayukawa might be trying that one on for size a little bit. 
and the ribbing is like a pretense for it. Now, Ishikaru is super careless with them pills. She didn't want to take any medicine, but she winds up taking five of these dang things. I mean, this girl is ready to party, okay? What she doesn't realize is that uh, diphenhydramine is a common formulation available over the counter. It's been it's been in, in use since the 50s, maybe earlier. It's very, very common. And the most common side effect for this medication is sleepiness. This is uh, diphenhydramine is what you would find in like a Benadryl, if you've taken Benadryl for your allergies. But it's used in more than just Benadryl. It's very common in, in a wide variety of different over-the-counter medications that you might take if you're not feeling very well, but you're not sick enough to go to the doctors or a hospital or a clinic or something like that. So she takes five of these things. No wonder she's drowsy the rest of the episode if it was some kind of a similar formulation to like a diphenhydramine. And nobody gives Shikaru any pills. She's going to ruin her life like this. This is crazy. And also in this episode, we get maybe an inkling that Shikaru's mom is single. She leaves for an appointment. She leaves Shikaru alone at the, uh, at the house for an appointment. And Shikaru mentions it would be best if you're not out meeting men. So why would she say that unless her mother were single and she was kind of busting her mom's chops a little bit. Now, Shikaru mentions her father in the first movie, Anohi, and uh, she mentions her father wanting to see her in um, the, the traditional summer uh, garments that she's wearing. So her father's still in the picture, not like uh, Akemi Kasuga, who's passed away, but but perhaps that they're separated or or divorced, but that's why we get this comment from Shikaru that she she shouldn't be her mom shouldn't be out meeting with men or or, or uh, cavorting with men. In the next moment, Shikaru has a very very interesting daydream in an infirmary that I think is is probably the highlight of this episode for for just the creative inclusion of Umao and Ushiko here. So there's this very um, film imagery. So it's like a sepia tint, the way like an old photograph gets when when the colors fade. It's got that sepia tint to it. Uh, we also see a sepia tint like this in the um, beginnings of several of the OVAs uh, where Casca's walking up the steps and it's replaying the the opening scene of episode one almost like a memory, the sepia tint, you hear a flickering sound like an old film reel when, when, um, when film goes through an old projector, like, like a eight millimeter, 16 millimeter film. So you hear that, that sound of film moving through the projector. It's very similar to the effect we see in episode two as Costco's waking up from his, uh, lemon lime dream. And it's this, I mean, it's this kind of uh, juvenile, you know, she's dreaming about Costco visiting her on her, on her sick bed and expressing all this concern and it's kind of romantic. But then what's really so interesting about this, this little daydream that she has this cutaway is that we see Ushiko and Uma who, who show up in uh, quite a few orange road episodes and, and in some really silly and over the top manners, we see these two characters showing up in Shikaru's fantasy, which is just, this is a really kind of crazy narrative choice because it, it really undermines this traditional narrative structure. None of the characters know Umao and Ushiko. None of the characters ever mention these, these two. These two are just like, uh, these crazy random people that show up in these, in some of these episodes doing really insane stuff. So far they've, their appearances have been fairly normal. 
like in the previous episode when Kurumi is watching them kind of confess their love on a park bench. Pretty normal Uma and Ushiko uh, appearance, but here they're actually infiltrating one of the main characters' daydreams, and it's unexpected. You you see that uh, Kasuga inside Shikaru's daydream, which is Shikaru's conception of, of Kasuga, it's not even the real Kasuga, and Shikaru both look over, kind of like, what the hell are you two doing here? And, and you have this Uma and Ushiko exchange just like usual, Umao is uh, like completely uh, wrapped up and beaten. He looks like a um, he looks like a veteran of some war who's like rehabilitating. He was just wounded. He's in an infirmary, and and it, you just have this super creative inclusion of this running gag that like is so super effective. And they slide it in there of all places. It, it was just a really great way to work them in, keeping in theme with with Shikaru's daydream while at the same time there's no logical reason for them to have been included there because Shikaru doesn't even know these people. How do you infiltrate someone else's daydream? This is all occurring in Shikaru's head and for some reason she's daydreaming about Uma and Ishiko being right there interrupting her and Kasuga. It's really, really clever and I really, really appreciate that inclusion of them of them here. Now, of course, Yusaku... Uh, in the next scene, he seems like he can hardly bear to witness Shikaru feeding Kasuga. Is it because he wants Shikaru? Is he jealous because he wants Shikaru to be feeding him? Or is it because he wants to be the one doting on Kasuga? He is jealous because the man that he wants isn't paying any attention to him. And he just wants to push Shikaru out of the way. And he wants to feed Kasuga. I think you guys know my opinion on that one. Now, later when they're out showing uh, Shikaru around town, like her last night or whatever, they're trying to give her like one one fun like one last fun time on the town. Uh, Kasuka seems to legitimately feel very badly for Yusaku when Shikaru pretends to be sick or she's falling asleep from the the Benadryl, mind you, and she's like pretending to be sicker and she's like, oh, I need to be alone with Kasuka. And and of course, this kind of crushes Yusaku because he doesn't want to leave Kasuka's side. He understands that Kasuka is about to go through something very, very hard. He wants to be there for Kasuka. But Kasuka really seems to understand that Yusaku's feeling some really heavy emotions. He repeats Yusaku's name twice, and it really seems like that comes from a place of empathy for Kasuga. And so it's it's part of what makes Kasuga a very sympathetic main character, despite having some faults and not being perfect. I mean, he's 15 years old. What do we expect? But he's got a good heart, and it shows right here. Now, Kasuga's dream imagery of the park bench, the lamppost, become real here in, in this scene where Shikaru is saying her fake farewells. She even repeats a line from the dream about not being able to hold on. It's because she can't stay awake, right? So his foreboding dream was was real, but he, he only assumed that she was dying, right? She's falling asleep because she took too much of a, of a uh, medication. So it's completely understandable as an audience member, for me, it's completely understandable that Casca thinks his dream is coming true. He's seeing the park bench and the lamp that he saw in his dream the night before. It's all coming true. If I was in Casca's shoes, A, I'd be shitting bricks. B, I, I would, I, my mind would be blown. It's all coming true. Now, Shikaru manipulated what began as a misunderstanding in, into making Casca like buy into his whole premonition. And it always offended my sense of justice that Kasuga is held accountable for everything when he was clearly the victim of this manipulation. 
Now, he was dumb enough to buy into this premonition whole hawk, but none of the other characters besides his sisters really understand why he would put so much faith into his own dream. But it always it always really seemed like him getting the water dumped on him along with Shikaru. For Shikaru, it seems appropriate. She manipulated pretty much all of the other characters, um, namely Yusaku and Shikaru. So Yusaku doing the the water dumping, it seems like it makes sense that he would want to target Shikaru as payback. But for for Kasuga to be included in that is if he did something wrong besides show concern for a person who he legitimately cares for and he legitimately feared for their well-being because of his uh, premonitory power, it, it, it always kind of offended me a little bit that he would be included in that because he was... I mean, if anything, he was duped. He's a rube, but he means well. He's meant well this whole episode. He Kasuga didn't lie like he did in episode four about going to work for his father. I mean, he didn't show any duplicity. He just showed concern for people, including Yusaku, who punched him twice in this episode. And yet he still shows concern for this other character. And so this episode, if anything, displays Kasuga's a rich sense of empathy that he shows for these other people that he cares about, even when those people are kind of dickheads to him in this episode. I'm looking at you, Yusaku. Now, when Yusaku breaks down crying to Ayukawa as he's holding the crowd back and he meets up with Ayukawa, he still thinks Shikaru is dying, of course. When he breaks down crying, this is, uh, is some more evidence for me that shows that his this macho karate persona that he shows is really just a facade for him. It shows that there's kind of this other side to Yusaku. There's something kind of on the on the other side of of the macho tough guy persona that's extremely sensitive. And what I'm not saying here is I don't want anybody to misconstrue my words. It's not that crying or or having a sensitive side makes him gay, right? Look, I'm sensitive. I get my feelings hurt and cry all the time, guys. It's it is what it is. But it's not that the crying or being sensitive means he's gay. It's that he's got something beyond this tough guy attitude. The tough guy attitude melts away. That's the outer level. That's the shell, which shows us that there's more to him than we think that there are feelings beneath this, this uh, facade that he shows us. And so that it's not that he cries. It's not that he's sensitive. It's that there is more to Yusaku than, than we as audience members are being shown at this date that makes me think that I am right and that he loves Casca. Now, this episode really does a good job of building on Casca's feelings toward Shikaru. It sort of builds on uh, episode eight a little bit, which again, that one also was written by Terada Kenji. So Terada Kenji is kind of coming back to build on some of his earlier themes that he's laid the groundwork for. The idea is that uh, Casca may not want Shikaru the way he wants Ayukawa. He doesn't feel romantically the way he does for Ayukawa. He might see Shikaru as something more closely akin to one of his sisters who, you know, I, I won't talk any Freudian incestuous stuff, but he has a protective role and he, uh, he cares and loves his, cares for and loves his sisters a lot. And you'll see that in later episodes. Um, and I think Shikaru probably falls into that bucket. He's the, she's the same age as his sisters. And um, he seems to care about her. He doesn't want to lose her. And he definitely doesn't want anything bad to happen to her. But um, this episode probably doesn't give us any uh, evidence that he wants something like romantic with 
Shikaru in his future. Um, it's not a great episode for his feelings towards Ayukawa. Those don't really progress too much here because he's so preoccupied with Shikaru. But it does seem to advance uh, Ayukawa's feelings for Kasuga here for the audience. We see her getting jelly uh, that, that Kasuga is so preoccupied with Shikaru and uh, ruminating on that. And and so there's clear evidence that Ayukawa is is miffled by Kasuga's relationship with Shikaru. It's It's something that bugs her. She wants to be with Kasuga. She doesn't want Kasuga to be with Shikaru in the romantic sense. So you're seeing this become more and more evident. And and she's, I think Ayukua, for her part, is becoming more and more open to those feelings with herself. She's becoming more open with herself about those feelings. I am inner circle. This episode was brought to you by the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Please check out our other podcasts at innercirclepn.com. Podcasts like The Plunge, The Hood Diner, Simmons and More Podcast, The Untrained Eye, Failing Hollywood, and The Hood Diner. You can also check out my other podcasts. One of them is called Shit Happens When You Party Naked, patreon.com slash teamalmy. I would love for you to become a supporter of Team Almy Studios. This is the studio that produces this fine podcast that you're listening to. And I thank you very much for listening to it. And um, I want to encourage you to subscribe. We're going to be doing some Orange Road now that it's summertime. I got a little bit more time away from my grad program. We're going to be doing some uh, bonus Orange Road themed content on that on that Patreon, including episode commentaries, which are going to be a lot more loose uh, conversations with me just reacting wildly to the, to the episodes. And so... Um, Check out patreon.com slash teamalmy for that. I would love you very, very much. Also, check out Creatures of the Night. It's got a tiger with a third eye where the pineal gland would be. And we just talk wild shit on that one. Honestly, half the time we're on mushrooms or smoking something. We're, we have a great amount of fun on that episode So uh, or on that show. So check out Creatures of the Night as well. Guys, um, it's been an episode. This has definitely been an episode. And I want to say that I appreciate you guys. And so let's uh, find a little bit of music.
Love 